Greetings and welcome to Lobes and Robes, How Neuroscience Can Change the World. This podcast is sponsored by the American University Center for Neuroscience and Behavior and explores the links between neuroscience and key policy questions today. I'm Susan Carl, a professor of law at American University Washington College of Law, and I will help lead discussions throughout our series along with Dr. Terry Davidson, director of the Center for Neuroscience and Behavior at American University and a distinguished professor of neuroscience here. This podcast is for anyone interested in how scientific discovery can make the world a better place. Thanks for listening. Welcome, everyone. I'm very happy today to introduce Alita Anderson, who is a professor at the American University School of Education. And with me is my expert co-host, Dr. Terry Davidson, who is the director of the Center for Neuroscience and Behavior at American University. So let's just get started. Alita, can you tell our audience a bit about your research? Certainly. Thank you so much for having me, Susan and Terry. I love to talk about my research (laughs) broadly. It really has focused on the ways to contextualize learning or make learning more accessible. So I'm primarily a teacher educator, and I began my study of language development and disorders as a special educator. And one of the broad ideas around my research is how to make concepts, both language concepts and non-language concepts, more accessible to students and teachers as well as the general public. So that's a broad brush, but I focused most of my work on dyslexia research. And my early research on dyslexia was focused on language processing variables that distinguished students with and without dyslexia across different cultures and language backgrounds. But what I learned over decades of working with students and families and educators is that the understanding and treatment of dyslexia is very highly privileged information, even among school professionals. So my more recent work on dyslexia about the past four years or so has really been focused on how and why there are gaps in professional knowledge about dyslexia and trying to find ways to address the gap in understanding. So that's sort of a more focused, my more recent focus. Thank you for that. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found out about the gap between neuroscientists and educators' understandings of dyslexia? So as I said, my main focus has been on supporting teachers' increased knowledge of children's reading development, dyslexia more specifically. In terms of the neuroscience connections, uh, I'll sort of go historically. One of the things that in the past decade that has really spurred my thinking on this topic has been the increased attention to better understanding brain behavior relationships that underlie language and reading acquisition. Um, And so Most of us now are pretty familiar with the term, the science of reading, and that has come about in really sort of in particular to address the gap between what educators may have access to in terms of neuroscience background and the understanding of the way that the brain learns to read. So one of my earlier works was focused on neuromyths. And so 
the neuromyth or the misunderstanding about the brain and learning in particular around dyslexia is the dyslexia myth. And that dyslexia myth has been something that a great number of researchers have identified as one of the most persistent myths or neuromyths in among not only educators, but the general public and even those with self-reported high neuroscience background. So that idea around a myth of dyslexia around backwards reading in particular has been something that I've looked at as a way to improve not only dispelling the myth, but improve educators' understandings about the ways in which neuroscience supports a better understanding of the reading process. So, Alida, first I want to congratulate you on this uh, paper that you had in uh, Frontiers in Psychology, the Dispelling the Myth. You were an author along with McDonald and several others. And this is a really paper that's been reviewed, uh, I should say cited, or at least viewed, more than 99% of all the other papers in that journal. And that's a very impressive journal. So congratulations on that. One of the things that paper said was that about 46% of people who had high neuroscience uh, exposure, and you said that was self-reported, basically believed in this really large number of neural myths. Do you have any sense of why that might be? I do. And I think that, you know, in that paper, and thank you for the congrats on that paper, it really has continued to kind of spur a lot of replication around the globe and extension to higher education institutions. So, and it certainly was not the first. There have been several papers that came before it. But this paper was the first large, it was the first to use a large sample from the United States to compare the prevalence and predictors of neuromyths among educators, general public, and individuals with high neuroscience exposure that they had self-reported. And one of the findings that was that there was a clustering of what we call the classic neuromyths, seven neuromyths that factored together. So items related to learning styles, dyslexia, the most artifact, the impact of sugar on attention, right brain, left brain learners, and using 10% of the brain. Those clustered together. And even though the general public endorsed the greatest number of neuromyths and fewer were endorsed by educators and those with high neuroscience, the most commonly endorsed neuromyths across all groups were the dyslexia myth and the learning styles myth. So your question is why? I think that's what's really led me to the connection between neuroscience and at least in the focus on dyslexia or a better or a more interdisciplinary understanding of the ways in which the brain influences behavior in terms of development. So that to me is sort of an opening for connecting the field of neuroscience with education. And again, I'm not alone in that. I think other reading researchers from the past 40 years have have described this as the modern synthesis. Seidenberg called it the, well, he really termed the science of reading in 2013 to be the modern synthesis, saying that educators lacked access to the science of reading due to this divide between science and education fields. So that's kind of, I don't know if I answered your question, Terry, but (laughs) I gave you a lot of information there. Sorry. Well, I was uh, surprised that so many neuroscientists 
would have believed in some of these things, but in some ways I understand it. And that personally, I do a lot of neuroscience, but I'm not an expert in dyslexia. So I may be subject to the same kinds of misinformation that's put out there outside of my particular focus as you know the general public is. I maybe have a better idea about how facts, or I should say how information is obtained, and maybe that we should be a little more careful about what we accept. But nonetheless, again, I still have to accept authority. And sometimes it looks like those authorities are giving us the wrong information. Yeah. And I think that that point is a really thorny point when it comes to neuromyths, because if we were to look at the top, you know, the, let's just say the top seven neuromyths, there may be different reasons for why they're accepted among the general public and educators. So for instance, the first idea of this like two culture hypothesis or, you know, the gap between research and practice, that could be certainly one reason. It's also called the cultural distance between neuroscience and education. So it could also, though, be confusion or distortions of facts. It could also be obsolete hypotheses. It could also be outgrowths of misinterpretations of experimental results. And in fact, in the case of the dyslexia myth, we can see a lot of them, even if you were to look into some popular, almost like folklore, popular ways to address dyslexia are rooted in the mischaracterization of neuroscience. Even so brazen as to have some of the actual neuroscience findings posted on, and on some intervention websites that are not at all based in neuroscience. So those are examples of how not, you know, it could be at neuromyths could exist for any number of those reasons. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. I'm wondering, how do you decide what is a neuromyth and what is not? That's a great question. And I think it's something that's been in sort of discussed a bit in among not only neuroscientists, but educators. And so the definition of neuroscience is a misunderstanding about the brain and learning. Now, does it have to be at the neuroscience level, the misunderstanding? Oftentimes, the way that I distinguish a neuromyth from another myth is, well, first of all, how might it be explained? If it could be explained through neuroscience, then potentially then its scientific basis in neuroscience might have been misunderstood. So I'm going to say that a little more succinctly. So if the term neuroscience is derived in large part from the notion that the general public and more specifically educators are too readily accepting of a teaching practice or an idea or technique that doesn't actually have a scientific basis in neuroscience, or if it does, it's been misrepresented or mischaracterized, or it may have a reflection of a basis in neuroscience, but it hasn't been rigorously tested within an educational context. So that phenomenon has been labeled as the spread of neuromyths or mistake, and it's simply the mistaken ideas about the brain or misunderstandings about the brain. And there's some really useful information from the Wellcome Trust organization in the UK and different articles by neuroscientists who discuss this idea about what's a neuromyth and what isn't and why. I have a question or a comment. My comment is, uh, particularly I was reading about the left brain, right brain, and that seemed to be a case where there was just a complete misinterpretation. I'm sure you know, Lita, that those original studies were done where people actually 
did a knife cut to separate the two hemispheres, and they found that the two hemispheres seem to have somewhat different functions, right and left. However, when the brain is, doesn't have that cut, when it's integrated, you don't have the two separate abilities. So, and that's just a case where very interesting set of findings that got a lot of press about these uh, folks who had this particular surgery and then completely misinterpreted, perhaps again by the press, which uh, has seeped into uh, maybe the general public knowledge and even the knowledge of some scientists. Yes. And I think when we look at the more contemporary research on synaptic plasticity and the ways in which interventions support brain development and you know there's so many different findings that can really show in a different way the the idea that there's integration across the areas of the brain and so i think that it could be an oversimplification there hasn't been a lot of research done on this yet but i also think of heuristics as an influence and bias as owing to some of these misunderstandings so and that's an area i'm sure that is probably in the years to come going to going to move us forward in better understanding how we can remediate some of these misunderstandings. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about what is a neuromyth. I took your test and I didn't do very well on it. One of the things I thought was true that you point out is not true is that students have different preferred learning styles. I'm wondering, is that a neuroscience question or is that more of a psychology question? And might there be evidence in one field that tends to support that proposition, even though it's not supported by neuroscience research per se? I think that's a great question. I think that the fact that learning styles, as it's been coined a myth, is has been something that has really shaken education in many ways. It may have the fact it can't be explained necessarily by neuroscience, but what it can be explained by is the fact that we don't have evidence that a style or otherwise known as a preference, a learning preference, is going to predict or imp- or make you better at whatever task you think that it will make you better at. So is that a neuroscience finding? No, that's a psychology finding. In fact, Pashler et al., Pashler and colleagues explain this as the meshing hypothesis, uh, that if you believe that if you have a preference for visual information and you may consider yourself a visual learning, there is no evidence that she, and when it's been tested, there isn't evidence that to show that you will actually be better at a task that is either visual or auditory or any other modality. So really the question is, what is the utility value of a preference? And I think it's a really intuitive question and one that educators have have maybe, this might go to the point about the causes of neuromyths. And if we were to parse out and say, okay, the learning styles myth may not necessarily be a neuromyth because we can't necessarily prove it or disprove it through neuroscience and there may not be a lot of neuroscience that has led to that misunderstanding. It's really been more of an intuitive, I think, a more of an intuitive way that people have understood education or experience. So if we were to think about learning styles as exposure to different, you know, auditory, visual, kinesthetic movement, tactile, so touch, so all of the sensory 
all the sensory information. And if your preference is rooted in one sense, perhaps it's the multimodal presentation and its frequency that is supporting your learning because of the multiple exposures, more so than it is your preference for any one of those things. Right. And you make that point in your paper. It's such an important point to say that if you've got the science wrong, and I hear you saying that the science shows that if you think you're an auditory learner and you just learn best through auditory means, the evidence actually establishes that you're not necessarily going to be learning any better using an auditory modality than if you learn through all the different ways that one can learn. Right. And I would even say, even in the case of evidence-based interventions that have been tested, if we know, for instance, back to dyslexia, if we know that one of the most important points of an intervention for, you know, an intensive intervention for a student who struggles to map the sounds of language to the symbols of language, there is a massive auditory component to and a phonological or language-based component to those interventions. And so if somebody is self-described as an as a visual learner, and that could be a real hindrance to access to an, an evidence-based intervention approach that we know actually works or we do have evidence for it. I was just wondering, so neuroscience kind of started out, basically the study of the brain and the nervous system. And it's had a number of different offshoots, such as educational neuroscience, and there's neuroeconomics, and there's social neuroscience, and nutritional neuroscience. And I think in a lot of cases, you think that that could be part of the problem. In other words, there's basic understanding of how the brain and nervous system works, and that's getting interpreted by folks who aren't necessarily neuroscientists. They certainly are knowledgeable people in their fields. So in other words, it could be the basis of overgeneralization. I was just wondering what you thought about that. That is my biggest question about how to change the persistent misconception of dyslexia. We know that knowledge transmission is an open question and debunking messages just because we tell somebody that the dyslexia myth of backwards reading is wrong, how, and you know, maybe that in and of itself counters the misinformation. But I think the question really is how do we support educators, families, and the general public to have a more sophisticated understanding about the ways in which the brain works within a particular context or domain? I mean, I think that a lot of times if efforts are too broad, then I think that that could also be a source of confusion. So in the case of dyslexia, perhaps focusing on synaptic plasticity, focusing on the reading network and different regions of the brain within the reading network could more deeply address school professionals' understandings than something that is very general. But you raise a really important point that these disciplines, education and neuroscience, are different, disparate disciplines. And so kind of back to some of the, the earlier discussion about cultural distance. How do we improve those connections? Even in, I ran or finished this pilot study, used, developing a module that was a multimodal learning module for school professionals 
on really targeting the science of dyslexia and the neuroscience of dyslexia. And the feedback on the early versions of the module were that the, and we tried to keep it very brief to under an hour. And we tried to keep it, you know, interactive and lots of video and different kinds of things that you would move a brain around to click on it and move it in 3D to different areas of the brain. And one thing that everyone commented on was that the terminology was too much. So it's ironic that the language that we're we're talking about language and misunderstanding language and the language load, the actual terminology was so, was too much for people. They actually had, many of them reported that they had to take out a piece of paper and write things down. They couldn't just listen to it and take it in. And so it's just an interest. It it reminds me of some of the real life sort of barriers among these disciplines and how do we help people learn really complicated, complex information across disciplines. That's a very important question to solve in the sense that when you're talking about those folks looking at having difficulty understanding the language, I think that's be true for me trying to understand language and economics and education. I mean, and also there's different gap, there's gaps in strategies and how we approach topics. And that, again, I think can lead to confusion and what we should accept and what we shouldn't accept. Since you're doing evidence-based kinds of work on that now, maybe you will figure out how to go back and revise your module to take out some of the big words, for example. And maybe there are ways of conveying the same concepts without, for example, using all of the scientific terms for the different parts of the brain. So I'm sure you're going to iterate this and come back with a module 2.0 that's a better fit with what people know and how they learn themselves because it sounds like it's really mostly just a language problem. Is that right? I do believe that. And I also believe that technology plays an enormous role, even in, you know, not to go down too far down the rabbit hole of developing this module, but I was working with a computer scientist and a game designer. And these folks have a completely different way of thinking about presenting information than either educators or neuroscientists do. So that was another sort of layer of interdisciplinary knowledge transmission that I think the more ways that we can find to bridge understandings through not just multimodal, but also across disciplines, I think that we're going to be more successful. Yes. I think as educators, we're all thinking about that now, that no matter what discipline we're based in, we realize that our students need to be able to translate across different disciplines. Have you found that some things work better so that even with the flaws in your first module, did you test what people knew after they finished your module and, and what they did learn? They certainly knew more neuroscience. So we looked at neuroscience understandings. We looked at specific topics in dyslexia, characteristics of dyslexia. We looked at neuroscience concepts support you know, for understanding dyslexia. We also looked at how this module Im- improved decisions about practice or, you know, referral intervention. And then the last thing we looked at was neuromyths, um, whether whether participation in the module moved the needle on 
the neuromyth around dyslexia, as well as whether it had any sort of more generalized effect if a more sophisticated notion or understanding about the brain in relation to dyslexia learning would have an influence on other myths, even that we didn't target in the module training. And what we found was the most significant impact was on the neuroscience of dyslexia, followed by the identification or characteristics of dyslexia. And not surprisingly, the dyslexia myth endorsement went down significantly, which was nice to see, but there wasn't really an effect on the other neuro, on the other endorsement of neuromyths. Those were, those continued to show the endorsement at rates in, that were reported in previous samples. And the other thing that it didn't do, it, it didn't translate to the question, the items that we had on practice-based decisions. So if it was in terms of deciding what types of approaches to use. So even when, and I think this goes to the translational piece, even when you do have a better understanding about the brain and learning with respect to dyslexia, and you may no longer endorse the myth and have a more sophisticated understanding, we still don't have very much research around how that translates to improved interventions for students. And that that really, I think, is the next yeah, there's very little research on the connections between these kinds of approaches for professional development school and school professional training and then improved dyslexia identification or intervention outcomes. So we're so that is really, you know, currently underway. Uh, I think that area of research is currently underway. Alita, do you think that in some ways there's too much trust in what are called facts and science? And it's been a long time since I've been in a high school or uh, in a science class, but um, that science is taught as a collection of facts. And once we say something's a fact, it makes it more difficult to view it as a myth. And so one of the things I think you're doing is great. And that is you're pointing out that some of the things that might've been considered facts aren't necessarily facts. My question is, do you think the way science is being taught, say in high school, and perhaps in some cases, even college, it makes it more difficult to get rid of sort of setbacks from myths, so to speak. I would say the presentation of any phenomenon, and if it's scientific phenomenon, you know, if, if I'm a language researcher, I'll just speak for my own, you know, my own area of science understanding. But whenever I teach my students about the ways in which language develops, and the most clear sort of dichotomy is, does it develop through nature or does it develop through nurture? And invariably, my students, once they get to know me, they, they always say both, right? And so I think that that's the case with any scientific phenomenon. Anything that is fairly complex is that there, at least I would hope, in the case of teaching science, that we're really helping to scaffold students to be able to grapple with multiple understandings of a phenomenon. And that will help them then to be able to, I mean, if we think about science as proving or amassing evidence to get to something that has more or less and then maybe debunking one and calling it a myth over others, I feel like it almost should go the opposite way where we're, we're exposing people to a lot of different ideas and helping them to 
make decisions about based on evidence what is in fact the strongest hypothesis or the strongest evidence which then supports this idea of myth busting or being a critical consumer of not just research but everything that is out there for consumption every type of information so that's a really broad i know that's a very broad pie in the sky answer terry but i don't want to put science teachers under the fire because I think that teaching, you know, teaching in the 21st century is a really complicated matter because there are so many ways for students to go down a rabbit hole of misinformation. I so agree with you. And I really think that part of it is that it's less about the knowledge per se and more about the attitude about assessing potential knowledge. So it's important to teach students to maintain some sense of skepticism in what we understand and to realize that what we believe is true at one moment, based on the best evidence available at the time, may change over time. And that in itself does not discredit the process of making science and gaining knowledge. It's just part of how one should approach critical thinking skills in general. And that seems to me to be really important and something that we should start thinking about and teaching students quite early in their educational careers. Yeah, I think uh, yesterday's facts are today's neuromyths, and most likely today's facts are tomorrow's neuromyths. And so we need to be able to anticipate, get rid of, just get the notion that, that what we're looking at is the best information that we have. And I think that's exactly what you were talking about, Alita, but hopefully you will find a way to do that. Well, and I think back to the premise that knowledge acquisition is highly privileged. You know, the fact that if you understand what dyslexia is and how to support a student who has that, you are in a much more privileged position than many, many people who don't have that same access. And that to me is a really, especially since, you know, we have upwards of 20% of our population identified with dyslexia. That is one of the most important reasons to make sure that there is more access for everyone, not just for teachers, but for caregivers. And so I, and for students themselves. So those are things that I feel very passionate about. And I think the evidence that supports the fact that if students with dyslexia don't receive intensive intervention that's evidence-based, that dyslexia and learning disabilities that are untreated in students oftentimes are co-occurring with school dropout rates, with unemployment, and also with incarceration. And so those kinds of inequities that we see early on for children and families really persist through the lifespan. So, you know, taking it from just about knowledge transmission to how can we support the public to not only be more informed, but really get the services and supports that that students, that all students and families deserve is one thing that I'm very passionate about. And let me ask you, if you did become a policymaker and you had the power to make policy changes that would help in all of these really important ways that you're talking about, what would be your priorities? I think that one of the 
and this may be my influence as a special educator, what I would love to see is a federal law that supports specifically dyslexia and much in the way I could envision it like the way the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act works in terms of supporting comprehensive programming across screening for dyslexia, intervention, and ongoing professional development. And I think it's really also important, like IDEA, like the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, supports across early intervention and early childhood, as well as through secondary education, because of you know the high comorbidity rates between learning disabilities and other post-secondary outcomes. It seems like we've gotten a better handle on providing early intervention. And yet we also know that dyslexia is affecting students all the way through post-secondary education. And yet we don't really give, there's not the same level of support, you know, so that would be a my sort of dream along with that policy change. I think that supporting states and localities to better identify children and serve families and school professionals, not just pre-professionals, but people who are in the field. And that kind of goes back to the earlier discussion about if school professionals who haven't been to school in 10 years, five to 10 years, they may need to have more advanced understandings about dyslexia that they just don't have access to because of the distance between when they finish school and the knowledge that has, and the, the research that has amassed since. So that would be another area. And then the final policy change would be targeted research that examines the connections between professional development training initiatives, not just to pre-service teachers, but in-service teachers, and then improved identification and intervention outcomes for students. Alita, are you in touch with people? Is there a interdisciplinary collaboration going on between people like you who do this research and those who are working on policy improvements? Or is that a dialogue that needs to be set up? There are some really strong supporters of the science of reading and very specifically initiatives through International Dyslexia Association, as well as I'm trying to come up with, I don't want to use the acronyms because you know how acronyms go, but CORE and IDEA and the Reading League is another policy to practice organization. So many of these organizations, among them Deans for Impact, you may have heard of Deans for Impact. These are consortiums, uh, not only of higher education, but also dyslexia advocacy organizations that have bridged with um, reading scientists to further advocacy outcomes for what is expected or what should be taught in terms of reading research for school administrators. But the question I think remains about how do we, it's currently happening at the state level, state and local level. And so that I, I would say is where federal funding and initiatives could be aimed. So in terms of interdisciplinary, our educators, and particularly uh, people interested in dyslexia, are they working closely with people who are neuroscientists? What would be the main kinds of information that you'd want from a neuroscientist? And I guess, are neuroscientists currently trying to provide that type of information? 
I think there are quite a few neuroscientists that are making these connections. And I am not a neuroscientist, so I, I want to always make sure that I am careful in showing my own <laughs> lack of knowledge. But it's something certainly that I think has, it's an area that I think has great promise for supporting educators to be better understanding of the brain and learning with respect to reading. I could certainly go through a few different areas that other neuroscientists that study reading in particular have identified. I mentioned the reading network. Reading network refers to the brain areas that are associated with reading development, the relationships between different brain regions and their implications, what implications they have on not only the development of reading, but when there are reading disorders. So we were talking previously about the, the myth of right brain, left brain, and the newer or the, the more complete idea around in the interactivity of the different brain regions. So I think that's something that could certainly be of use to supporting educators increasingly accurate and comprehensive understanding of reading development and also disorders. Another area that neuroscientists have identified is the idea of, of when the reading brain is disrupted in dyslexia or through dyslexia. And so helping to see how disruptions in different areas are implicated when we have in relationship language and different types of cognition as compared to basic visual processes. So that could, you know, just that idea that really helping people to dispel that misunderstanding that reading is about or dyslexia is about a visual processing could really support a better understanding. And then some of the other areas in terms of neuroscience concepts and principles, this goes to one of our earlier discussion points, how much neuroscience is really necessary for educators to know. And Dan Willingham has puts that point across. If you're an educator, is it really is how important is it to be steeped in neuroscience if we're talking about concepts like neuroanatomy, neuro, neuroplasticity, working memory, processing speed. I think those could all be supportive of educators' improved understanding of dyslexia, as well as other learning-related behaviors. One of the things that, that you point out is it's pretty difficult, I guess, for all of us to be experts in everything. So we've become sophisticated in our various domains, and it takes a lot of effort. And so I guess we need to rely on each other more, and that is interact with people who, you know, personally, I'm interested in dyslexia, but I don't know very much about dyslexia. It could be that, you know, I would have some insights that could help solve these problems if I knew more. But it does take an opportunity for us to interact together, uh, and not just dyslexia, but on any, basically on any of the types of neural mischief that, that you've mentioned. That's such a profound reflection, Terry. I think that's the human condition, and especially coming out of the pandemic where we really have been siloed. <laughs> and another way for us to be thinking about interdisciplinary solutions, I think, is through technological access. The fact that we can, and even in, in response to the pandemic, you know, to not to go off course too much, but just the fact that researchers globally have been collaborating to come up with a solution to solve the problem of the pandemic 
since the very beginning and sharing data. And I think that offers us as a human species probably the most progress and the most hope. And so that to me, if we can keep figuring out how to create collaboratives in ways that can address these kinds of issues, I think that we're going to hopefully keep growing as a human species. I don't want to steal Susan's thunder, but I'm sure that she's interested in the notion, because I'm very interested in this notion too, for a variety of reasons. We mentioned policy. And so if we have scientific findings, education, educational neuroscience, any kind of neuroscience, really to have impact, right? We need to be able to get to policymakers. And I'd actually be interested in both your and Susan's opinion about how we can accomplish that. What are the kinds of things that will uh, that policymakers need to know about what we do so we can have the kinds of changes that maybe have broader impact than having just having a paper or, or impact on our fellow academicians? I think that's part of what we're trying to push for through this very podcast, more of that kind of interdisciplinary collaboration and discussion. It occurs to me that part of the problem is that what you need to know in order to be an expert in any particular field is growing. So there's just so much information to know and understand at a sophisticated level. And then there's a whole nother set of skills that are involved in translating that very complex information in a way that's accurate but understandable to people who don't have the deep knowledge base of an expert in the field. And so we're still, as a society, kind of trying to figure that out. How can you be both very specialized, but also collaborative with others? It will probably take a long time to figure out the best practices for doing that. That is something that I I think that even within different domains, I think that's what makes it maybe such a challenge sort of conceptually is that even within different domains, say if say if we're just talking about policy research around dyslexia, that could have a whole set of influences that are unique to that, to this topic versus if you, we were looking at, like you were mentioning, um, neuroscience and nutrition. And that has a whole other set of influences and players. And so, you know, maybe thinking about policy topics as well as the different kinds of players involved in them or audiences. Yeah, that actually, the, the notion of neuroscience and nutrition really dovetails with education. And that what we know about nutrition and the brain and its impacts on memory or brain areas, memory, I mean, those are really kind of still underexplored areas, but kind of exciting and uh, be nice if we were able to integrate more. Well, in, in terms of the similar audiences, even if, as Susan, you were describing, even if there are different levels of expertise or specificity for particular topics, there are shared audiences, certainly, you know, in terms of nutrition, food access, and things like that, that are shared across schools that have concerns about students with dyslexia. And so I think that there could be some really interesting ways to think about neuroscience's reach across different areas of need for communities. And that could be an interesting policy direction as well. Well, it sounds like there's so much more we could continue to talk about, and maybe we'll be able to get back to all of this another time. 
what are you headed off to do next? What's your next big research project on these topics? My next big project is to, well, we're, we're in the process of finishing this paper and publishing it. So that's one that we're working on right now. And then um, we're applying for a grant to really scale up the module. And so we're probably going to do one more, you know, one more, to, like you said, I think you use 2.0. It feels more like 12.0, but <laughs> but it probably it really is 2.0. And so we'll probably be working on the newest module. So the newest module and also trying to scale, get funding to scale it. And so I also have another project where we are replicating findings that we, from a, a study with higher education professionals that was um, published by the online learning consortium that was focused on neuromyths and evidence-based practices. So we are replicating that study. We're adding a few items. And so that is underway as well. So we're, I'm sort of working on in those two areas. That sounds like a fascinating research agenda. And hopefully when those projects are, are completed, we'll have you back to let us know what you discovered. I would really love that. This has been really lovely. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for this podcast episode. Thanks very much for listening. And as always, we welcome your feedback at neuroscience.policy at american.edu. We hope you'll join us again for our next episode. And do let us know if there's anything in particular you'd like to hear more about.